Welcome to this episode of the 9420 podcast, where we talk about the music that we love and the industry that we tolerate. called Hold Me uh, by the band Dreamer. And what is interesting about that is that was a demo by the band that you were in, Carl, back in the early 80s that actually got you one of your first deals, correct? That's right. That, that, that was what I was a four-song demo that we did in a, in a day. Matter of fact, two days, two different evenings, you know, in a studio called Kingdom, Kingdom Sound Studios. But let's say hello. Is Greg here? Is Greg here? Greg I'm is here. here. I'm here. <laughs> Because well, tonight's episode is about is about 
is all about demos. Right, the, the lost art of demos. Tell us a bit about that, Greg. Why, how we got that topic today. Well, how we got the topic. I, I was out uh, surfing the uh, proverbial web and um, actually came across a, a podcast that's done uh, by a couple guys in Wales. Uh, they're our new friends, Steve and Ben. Stephen and Ben. And uh, they have this wonderful concept for a podcast. It's called Songs from a Padded Envelope. And it took me a while to figure out what I thought that meant. Tell me if I'm right. I, I, what I think it means is when you mail your demos, you put them in one of those padded envelopes. Is that exactly? It? And yeah. I just, I, I mean, just the, the title of the show alone just intrigued me. So I did a little digging. Turns out these guys are. Uh, Super cool, very articulate. They've got a lot of music business experience. And the premise of their show is they're talking about how demos were created. They're telling the stories behind the demos. Uh, they're interviewing the artists associated with making the demonstration recordings. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a really cool concept. I was, I was bowled over. And so I thought, Let's do a 9420 version of um, talking about demos, and maybe even we can get the guys to to chime in on a couple of uh, questions yeah. that we might ask. He sends them a couple of questions, yeah. and, and they, um, they so, answer this. So they're going to be part of the show. So uh, go out. We'll give them the first of many shout-outs. Go, go find songs from a padded envelope and uh, check that out. It's on Apple, iTunes. And- yeah. Yeah, so as far as yeah, – I think – because of technology today, demos are kind of a lost art. And, and, you know, it used to be back in the day, you know, here we go. I hate that phrase, back in the day, you know, <laughs> back in, in 1411. You know, <laughs> but back in the day, what we did, you, you, know, you either may, you had like a, a four-track cassette recorder or a matter of fact, I used to have one of those four-track TIAC reel-to-reels with, with half-inch, with quarter-inch, no, half-inch tape. It was kind of cool. But anyway, we go into the studio and – um Remember, of course, it's a thousand bucks for this tape. We saved up and we went, went into the studio two nights. We had like, I think, um, six to nine on a Tuesday and a Wednesday night. So six o'clock to nine, we go into the studio, this 24 track studio in uh, called Kingdom Sound Studios. Matter of fact, the, the thing about Kingdom Sound Studios, it's the studio where Joan Jett recorded I Love Rock and Roll. And that's where I met Joan years ago. And we remember the, the quick story. I, I digress. But we're sitting there, and it was Studio A and Studio B. So we're in Studio A working with the guy because subsequently after we did the demos, we started working with the guy who owned the studio because he liked us. He signed us to a, a production deal. That's how the whole thing started. So we're just sitting in the studio, and in the other studio is um, – was, was Kim Fowley around? No, Kenny Laguna and okay. uh, and the guy from – I don't know if that – I never met that, that, that guy. Mm. But um, no, that was – he was before. He was the guy from The Runaways, wasn't he? Yeah, we we yeah. can do a whole podcast on Kim Fowley. So. But anyway, so so anyway, so I meet I meet you know that's how I met Ricky Bird who, who was in you know Joan Jett's band and Eric Amble, all these guys in the beginning, and we're sitting there and she comes out we're playing demos and I so we go in there and play they play I Love Rock and Roll we're doing our pop homey stuff you know right. real stuff and we think. Oh, this is crap. This will never go nowhere. <laughs> Here it is. 50 years later, 40 years later, her, her stuff is like iconic. That, that record right. is iconic. <laughs> and my stuff is like on a podcast that no one's ever heard before. So obviously, funny. I knew what I was talking about. So anyway, why we got a deal from the demo, we went in there the first night and basically we, we were all rehearsed. So we just 
played four songs straight through. Just played them. Set up, took about an hour and a half to set up, and then just basically played them one, maybe two takes each because we were pretty tight, you know? And that was it. And the guy wasn't impressed because just twangy guitars and drums because he didn't know what the songs were, right? Right. So we so we leave. We go tomorrow, 6 o'clock, you know, be here. We get there the next day. You know, we, the music's already kind of a little mixed. So he puts up, you know, he's starting to put all these mics up. I go, no, we just want one mic. I go, one mic? Yeah, we just sing the vocals live. Two guys, one mic. We'll just do it. He goes, no, but what about separation? Nah, that, that takes too long. We, we don't, we're just going to do it live together. We, we, that's how we do it. I goes, all right, whatever you want to do. I don't care because you're paying, you know. Anyway, so we, we play the songs and we just start singing. As long as you take, we I literally sang the songs straight through all the harmonies, you know, straight through live and in about like 25 minutes, you know, and the guy goes, Get in here. So he, so he just looked, because then, then he got to hear the songs, the melodies, and the vibe of the songs and our voices. He said, how about, he gave us our money back and said, here, take your money back. I want to sign you guys a production deal. I think you guys, you know, and that just started the whole thing. And that's how we. Wow, that's know, pretty, uh, yeah, that's like kind of a dream come true scenario. Right? Well, we thought so, you know, right, and, right. like I said, but <laughs> that, guy had, that guy had a piece of my publishing until the day he died. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Well, but, um, I think that's what makes it a demo. The the fact that you guys just ran through the songs and it was live in the room back in the day, as we like to say, I mean, in, in the early 80s, I mean, everything was like multi-tracking, you know, and it's like not very many people actually recorded live the band in the studio. Everybody was interested in spending an hour and a half on a snare sound, right? So right. I, that, that was that came later. Not, not yeah, but I know what you're saying though. You're right. Yeah, I think that's kind of what makes it a demo. My my thing on demos is that, and, and this is odd to say, but you know, in all the bands that I ever played in, and and all the recording we ever did back in the late '70s and '80s, uh, some in the '90s, I I never considered the idea that we were going in to make a demo. I was always about trying to get a master quality recording out of the session. And so it's, it's odd in some ways that, that the whole concept of uh, songs going into a padded envelope, because I never really cared about what I was going to pitch. We were just trying to make the best recording we could make. And can I tell you, can I cut? I, you know, I, I, I just, I, I'm thinking of because now this is all stuff that reminds me of what I used to do. Right. What we did one time, this is, this is really true, is like we wanted back bef- before this happened, right around this time, we wanted. This is back in the day of cassettes. Now there weren't right. even CDs. We were sending cassettes. Right. Of course. We wanted Miles Copeland, the police you had happened. I wanted Miles Copeland to manage us. You know, this is this is you know, no, no, matter of fact, this was after RCA, and, we, and this is before the, the next band you're going to hear later. So I wanted Miles Copeland, who was the police's manager, the managers out in L.A. Called them and called them. Stuart Copeland's brother, wasn't he? Right, his brother. Yeah, right, yeah. and uh, and no response, no, 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 no unsolicited material. So I decided, like, well, cassettes, you know. I said, you know, maybe if we send them something, like when you go to a bank, you get a blender. So what I did is I- <laughs> You go to a I, bank, you get a blender? Back in the day, you used to, if you open up a bank account, they used to give you a blender. So, um, no, no, I, no. no. I, 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 by bought, the way, I, hold on, hold on, stop. Okay, so we never got a blender. You got a blender. This reminds me of something that we need to get out front and dealt with 
immediately. The last podcast, I said that it was a national movement and a thing that there were organists inside upscale restaurants for the working so class. So maybe you had organ you had organists in restaurants in Kentucky. We had blenders at banks up in New York. So leave me alone. Well, I, I, right. Uh, so that's the point. Let me finish. Let me finish my oh, story. No, no, no. Keep keep your thought. But I just want I want to give you and not so much Nicole because she actually posted a piece of research that I did regarding these organist in uh, in in the mid-century uh landscape of music uh i sent you guys a bunch of uh ads for organist at upscale restaurants and so carl i'm waiting on your public apology for claiming that it didn't exist Oh, I, you can Photoshop. You know, anybody can make that stuff up. Anyway, <laughs> let me finish. Let me finish my story. My story is anyway. I knew so, I wasn't going to get in the pot. Talking about demos. So what I did was I took our cassettes after calling them and calling them and sending them letters and getting nothing. You put them in a blender. I, I, I put them in a toaster, <laughs> and I and I mailed Miles Copeland a toaster. Are right? you kidding me? So check it out. So no response. So then I figured they were like fourteen ninety nine. So I bought like five. To- <laughs> I bought like five toasters, and once a week for about a month and a half, I sent Miles Copeland a toaster with our cassettes. I get I get this letter back from like a, from Miles Copeland's office. Mister Laco, stop sending us toasters. <laughs> <laughs> stop Boy, sending uh, us toasters. We'll we're, actually we're, listen we're, to your demo. You need a. Uh, you, we need uh, some comic relief there uh, from the uh, sound oh. desi- from the sound design. Rep- yeah, yeah, no, no, that's no. the question of the week, Carl. Oh, oh I this, don't know. This, this has come off the rails. This, there you go. This has come off. Anyway, the rails. so you know what? Since we we're just talking about this, let's let's see what um the guys from uh, yeah was it Stephen that answered this question Steve, about Stephen answered the first question like yep. you know yep. is making is making demos a lost art. Let's hear what Stephen had to say. Is making a demo a lost art? I really hope not. I think there's something hugely positive about sketching out ideas using a demo to road test your melodies and your tempos and your aspects of the song that you're not sure about. You can go back and revisit different versions and, you know, see what really works for you and give yourself some time before you commit to that final version. So I hope it's not a lost art. I can understand the the pressure of time and money and uh, the pace at which things, you know, get uploaded and new content, so, so that that you have to get your first version as the version, but why not take some time to sketch some stuff out? There's nothing to be lost, and everything to be gained. <laughs> Isn't that cool? So, I mean, obviously, these guys are going to be classing this podcast up considerably, right? Well, this is their voice, but I'll tell you, he's, he, he's right in the sense that one, one thing that, that made me see about, because I think there's this thing, you know, and you know this, Greg, it's called Beat the Demo. A lot of times you record this great demo and it sounds so cool and you, and you capture this vibe and then you go into the studio to try to recreate it and you lose something and you never get that same vibe and you kind of, it's kind of beat the demo because sometimes the demo is just better. has a better something. Yeah. It, but when the Beatles released the anthology records back in the late 90s, when they showed all these different versions of the songs they did before they actually chose the one that was the with a record, 
you see that they, they did exactly what Stephen was saying. They played different tempos, different this, different rhythms, and then they would stumble on the right one, and it seemed to be they were right most of the time, obviously, you know, because they did some weird versions of some of those songs if you go back to that anthology records. So you think that um, Hold Me, the, the first thing we heard, that's what attracted uh, the label? Well, that, that was one of the of, of the four songs on the demo. No, it definitely was because we, we were coming off, we had this great, we had a cool look too. We had this cool Beatle look. You know, we were very retro um, 60s and well, we, this was we, a this was a time when when power pop was kind right. of getting we're, a lot of attention. We were right on the verge of that. We were yep. right. We were just timing was right. We were right there. Right. And then right. um, I don't know. Just you know, stuff happens, and we got dropped. We did one record, didn't really do well. And when I was doing A and R to the extent that I did it, it would take a lot for me to cancel, you know, or or or, or choose not to work with somebody because. Um, I didn't particularly like the way they worked. If if their demo or if their recording blew me away, I mean, you wanted to be associated with that recording. That was me. I, I don't know. I, yeah, but you're, I, I think but you're, ego. You're think, a true guy, but. Well, I think ego is, is, has kept a lot of great music out of the marketplace for years and years and years. And I'm talking about ego over on the business side, you know, I mean, the artist right. can be the artist that they're expected to be at some point. You thought of the second question. I don't, I don't kind of get it. I'll read it. You said, you asked them, you do a great job celebrating the self-belief it took to submit demos back in the day. Again, with the back in the day, mm -hmm. you know, when is self-belief and persistence just delusion and for creative endeavors, does it matter? That's what you asked them. You want to hear well, the answer first? Uh, that's my that's my big thing. It's like you know, is when does persistence just when is it just delusional? You know, so because and, and most of the time, <laughs> a lot of a lot of um, a lot of what they talk about on the podcast is this idea that you know we kind of created these things and we put a lot of creative energy into them, uh, only to hold them up to be either you know. I mean, some artists have even gone to the extent to keep rejection letters, which I think is a deplorable practice. I have them. I have say, five times. Say I can't, I, talking about something that I don't get, I mean, why would you, why would you give that more power than it deserves? I mean, it's not rejection power. letters, it's, it's, rejection letters are, I mean. I was saving them for when I became rich and famous so I could tout them and show them. And not, not because I wanted to like, you know, to, to revel in them, you know. <laughs> well, and for some people too, those rejection letters just act as another form of motivation they motivate, to, yeah. I, to, to be able to get down what they that. truly I just believe never in. Cared. I just never cared whether or not somebody liked what I was doing. That's a, oh, you're so full of baloney. No, it's true. I did, let's, I hear, let's, hear what, let's hear what Ben had to it, say about this. Okay. So someone like articulate and cool. Yeah, and exactly. Classic again. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now we're going to go to the classy part of the show. <laughs> Here's Ben. Well, there's something about that all-conquering self-belief that you have as a young musician or a band starting out for the first time that is so essential and vital. And if we could bottle it and carry it with us at all times, then we would, because it makes it seem that anything is possible and that everything is within your grasp. I'm going to say that there are a lot of people who have gone on to have major success that I would have described as deluded. So either their success proves me wrong, or maybe it comes down to a hefty dose of luck and happenstance, or possibly other more nefarious reasons. 
When we interviewed James Acaster for the latest episode of the podcast, he said in reference to making music, what is the point in doing any of this if you're not trying to do something amazing? And I'm inclined to add to that, that in order for more great art to be made, we need more people to be working from this premise. No doubt some of them will be deluded, but on balance it will be worth it for the moment's brilliance that are brought into existence. Yep. Well, I don't know. <laughs> he just classed up our podcast a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I always thought of this too. Like, I know, like, the way we think an English accent is so cool. Do they think my, like, Brooklyn, Long Island accent is cool over there? I'm I don't sure think they so. do. I'm sure they I don't think they do. I'm, I think I'm they, sure they, they're they, beyond impressed with the whole thing. Right. right. <laughs> right. What's interesting about his answer is, Carl, you and I were even talking about this a little bit this morning, about the fact that when you're first starting out with something, it's almost better if, like, you're not trained in it or you don't know what you're doing because you just you just go for it and you have such confidence in what you're doing because you believe in the fact that there is an end goal and there's going to be success to it that you don't let anything else really cloud your judgment or cloud the ability to get it done it's only after the fact that you look back and you say oh well maybe i could have done this or maybe i could have done that so i kind of agree with him on on how he answered the question about how that self-belief truly is what kind of moves the persistence forward to get stuff done and make it happen. Yeah, I, re- I really dug the uh, part of the answer. Um, if you're not expecting for something amazing to happen, then why, why even try? Why, why, why try? Why no, do I agree. I, I think, I think it's about, that's why I was t- yeah, we were talking about this this morning about with, with why I think there's so many more success, success happens so much in, in music anyway, or, or in the arts with young people, because sometimes wisdom and experience kind of hinders you because then you get a little more cautious. Oh, that won't work. Cause I've tried when, when you're young, you don't know, yeah, let's do that. I can do this. Who cares? You know, you don't, you don't know it, it's wrong or you don't know it can't work. And that's how sometimes magic can happen when you're sitting there going, well, I don't know if I do this, maybe I, I, I it probably won't work. So you second guess yourself. And yeah, so I, I think, you know, ignorance is bliss. And sometimes it's what I call the asshole factor. And I, I like the experimentation too. I mean, when we were talking about making recordings, I mean, we, I can't tell you the number of hours we spent, like, you know, like turning metal cash uh, trash cans upside down out in the hallway of the studio and right. banging them with mallets and all that kind of stuff. And I, that that was an no one, enjoyable. No part one does of it. it anymore, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, nobody can record a. You know, you throw a Neumann on a metal trash can. It it sounds pretty cool in places. But everyone's, so. everyone's now looking through plugins to get the sounds, and and there's the guy in a room, and you're sitting there just picking your nose. You yeah, know? it's just, like what, what are you doing with this trash can? You know that that trash can costs three hundred dollars. You know, let's, so. you you want to move into the uh, into the late eighties now? Yeah, well, I had let's an do eight, it. I had a nineteen eighty literally 1980 little quick story to tell uh, okay. and, and so in 1980 i um met my mother who liked spending time in the bahamas you met and, your mother in 1980 no i, I met her there i met her in the bahamas she called and she said hi mom i'm your son greg she, she called and she said would you like to um meet me in the bahamas and i said that would be fantastic uh being 20 years old i couldn't think of anything better to do so i said yeah mom i'll do that so i fly to the bahamas and she's staying 
in um, this place called Paradise Island. And I was there. Yeah, I know Paradise. Sure. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I knew that uh, Chris Blackwell, right, who will be a name familiar to people if they're interested sure, in Island music. Records, man. Sure. Yeah, he owned a studio in uh, outside of Nassau called Compass Point. Yeah, big and studio, sure. Yeah, it was it was very very cool. So I took one afternoon while I was there, and I decided I was going to take my quotes demo to the studio to see if I could get somebody to listen. So this is the one time I did actually try to, you know, pitch my demo a little bit. So I show up at the studio and it's fairly deserted, but this is the cool part of the story. So in studio a, there were a couple people working and so I walked in, there wasn't any security, anything like that. Not like it, like it would be today. Uh, and I ended up meeting, working on a track, uh, Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth, right. who, who are talking heads. The, the talking heads folks. And it was funny because I said, you know, I always tried to make records and masters and I never really considered that I ever made demos. Well, I took my band's recording in and after a little conversation, getting to know them, they were very gracious and cool. Uh, I said, would you guys like to hear uh, the recording that we just made uh, of my band? And they're like, sure, put it up. I, I put it up on the machine and we listened and they were very um, polite and they were literally working on a mix of Born Under Punches off the Remain in Light album, which is a classic record. They listened to my recording and they basically said, that is a really good demo. Da, 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 da. They called my master a demo, so I probably won't, won't ever well, forget probably that. Probably because you didn't have a toaster. <laughs> it's exactly right. But anyway. uh, yeah, that's, so that, that's my little 1980 story. I don't know if I have one from 88. So, so th th this next song I'm going to play, since you know it's about, we're doing demos, if you don't... After Dreamer broke up and, you know, we lost our deal with RCA, you know, I wandered around a bit and decided I wasn't going to, wasn't going to co-write anymore. I wasn't going to be in a band because Dreamer was in a band where we all worked like a Beatle band. Like, you know, we co-wrote, we did everything together. This was more like, so it was called Carl and the Passion was the name of the band. And we got a deal with um, MCA actually out in LA. And this was, and this record actually was released as the flip side. This was supposed to be the single, but the flip side of this single, which I know I'll, another time got got you know in the top 20 over in uh in england but the reason why that didn't really get any further because we couldn't afford to go over there man was, anyway <laughs> so, so this is um but this demo basically like you know what what like it's funny like when we talked about this earlier with you greg you, you could have gone over and hung out with uh steven and ben's parents <laughs> probably, 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 you know? anyway maybe i did and um so anyway, the funny thing is, in, in this, in the three or four years, or the four years from the the Dreamer demo to this demo, it got a lot more. You can see the difference in music. How it got more new wavy and 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 more like darker lyrically and like a yeah, that kind of staggered bass line. And this, this like, is called this is called How Do You Get Home.
anyway, the, the difference between that and, and the years since the first demo, that was done again in a real stu- in, 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 a, in a big studio, and that one we had a producer. So that one, but then again, even then, we're making demos. We never, unless you're signed to the label prior, you know, for some reason, unless you're signed to a label and, and the label's making the record to be released, it's a demo. That's how we always saw it. Because what happened was always, in my experience, whenever you went to the, um, the label, they would always inevitably just change everything and, and make it different. And they want to remix it. They want to re-record stuff. They want to put, of course, they always want other musicians. They never think you're the good enough. That's why we always had this demo mentality. I don't think it, I don't think it was till like 2000 and after, or, or even a little later, when, when the computers get really big, 95, they started getting really, you know, with, with, with programming and stuff. You know, we, we toured with programming back in in the late eighties, but maybe ninety five, the you know, was when we started getting into like sequencing and that kind of stuff, and maybe two thousand, and then it became commonplace. The Garage Band, maybe two thousand four, that's when that became like everyone had that now. So, but prior to that, it was all demo stuff. That's my feeling. Yeah, I I think that um, I like that track, but quite honestly, I mean, I had not not really spent any time with these tracks, and uh, it's great to hear them. Um, I, I think that uh, absolutely kind of more of the time f- felt more timely. I mean, you know, almost like that, you know. Oh, the, definitely. You can hear the DX7, the, you know. You can like hear the, and, the, and the sinister, you know, guitar lines. The Roland, you, you know, can, you the can hear of, the Roland D50. Back then you could hear like yeah. what keyboards were being used at the time because yeah. you know the, the sounds you were getting. Exactly. But I actually, I actually think, and also of the time is that there's, maybe a little less melody and I, that's why i actually prefer the the other track but uh yeah it's cool no, demo. Well, other stuff was more i guess more organic because it was just guitar bass and drums and it's more and it was pop, just like man. yeah yeah so anyway let's hear us so um oh yeah so um so one of the cool little things when i went out to hear um uh songs from a padded envelope um I've started, I've, I've listened to all the episodes and I've, I've started to like really get into the intro music. So I asked a question about it. I'm like, I'm intrigued by it. Is it a demo? Uh, what's the origin story of uh, the music on your podcast and uh, or the intro music on your podcast? And they answered that for us. Our intro music is uh, taken from a song called Where Are You Now and Where Were You Then? by a band called State Sponsored Jukebox uh, from an album called Last Night's Thoughts This Morning. It's actually a band that Ben and I put together uh, with another friend, Mark. Um, We got together for a few weekends in a studio uh, in Norwich, uh, the east coast of uh, England, and holed up in a studio for a few weekends and, uh, and made an album. And it was a hugely creative experience for us. Uh, we just basically had the bones of a whole bunch of songs and decided to throw whatever we could at those songs. And uh, we ended up with an album that we're really proud of. And, and it's probably the most sort of creative musical experience that, that we've ever had. Uh, so much so that we went back to the studio a few months later and made a second album, which is up on Bandcamp uh, called Saturdays and Sundays. Um, actually, you might not be able to access it yet, but it'll be up there soon. <laughs> um, but we're really proud of it. And it also felt really appropriate lyrically and uh, in terms of how it was made to use it for the for the podcast introduction music. And it fits really nicely. Um, and I really like that 
strange harmonica intro now uh, that introduces each each episode. I've become very fond of that. It's um, it's funny. It's because I went I went back and what our podcasts are supposed to be doing is exposing people to music. So uh, I went and listened to state sponsored jukebox. What I could find out there, uh, and that band is um, lush, and uh, the recordings they've made are um, they're kind of all over the place and in a cool way. I mean, uh, uh, the songs progress and the recordings progress and they get to uh, it's actually unlike what they've used as intro music you know they what they used as intro music is kind of a cool little jangly guitar sound right. uh, and a, and a boxy drum track uh but uh if you listen to their recordings the catalog thus far um uh, there's some real um kind of heavy uh, almost bordering on psychedelic stuff towards the end of the tunes and it's very cool you know, you know what I find? You can tell, or I can, where something was recorded. I think people in L.A. record a certain way. People in New York record, record a certain way. And people in England record a certain way. And there's a different sensibility, the way they record, the way they put together music. You know, I tend to like how English music is recorded right. the way I always love English drummers. They hit them um, the beat different, a little ahead, a little angry. Where like LA, it's a little behind the beat, and you know where like New York is like right on it. So it depends. Nashville is like you know they make different records there as well. You know, so yeah. you can almost tell when we're in my opinion, if you listen, where records even made. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, when I heard I, I I went and listened to some of their stuff mm -hmm. as well, and I heard that too. They have that. English kind of way of putting together a record. Yep. Even that guy we had, we did a campaign with, uh, you know, a few weeks back. You know, uh, Nigel Passy. Mm -hmm. He has that same kind of vibe to him too. That English sensibility of making records, which is kind of you know, which I think I've is always cool. been an Anglophile. I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of bebop deluxe and bands from the British Invasion era or before and. Um, I love Prefab Sprout. I've taken a lot of heat for my love of Prefab Sprout through the years, but I think they're bordering on genius. And so, yeah, I've always, I've always loved the way records are made there. Do you want to hear the last question? Again, well, this is I think before we hear the answer to the last question, I would love to know your guys' opinion on it because <laughs> it's just it's a classic question that I think Greg just wanted to get an answer to. But is it possible to teach old dogs new tricks? Well, if you knew my dog, <laughs> Alvin, you couldn't even teach a young Alvin anything. He was, he was, I loved my dog, but he was like, I get everyone goes, oh, my dog is so smart. Not mine. My dog was just, Alvin, he, he was, was lovable, such a sweetheart. But he was stupid. He, I'm sorry. He was, he couldn't get his way out of a bag. You know, he, he, you're in New York. You're in New York. I'm in Tennessee. Our listeners will not know that Alvin actually was a house guest. In, ten in Tennessee with me for what? A couple weeks? Well, I was living in Nashville back then, but I came, into, I came up to New York for Christmas and you, uh, I couldn't put him on the plane, so you kept him. Did you ever know that at the time my daughter, I don't, I don't know how old Kate might have been, but she had a parakeet, a much beloved parakeet named Bongo. I literally went into Kate's room and Alvin, who never really did much of anything i saw the tail feathers hanging from the uh from from his lips if dogs have lips <laughs> and i immediately freaked out and i said alvin 
and he opened up his mouth, and Bongo was perfectly fine. So get out of here! Know, it's, Alvin almost ate Bongo. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. I mean, the the bird was perfectly fine. It was as if Alvin didn't even know how to eat a bird. <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted to put it in its mouth. So bizarre. No, it's it's true. I hope I don't have to do more research and documentation on this story. Can you do? Can you teach it old dog new tricks? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, it, I think it's harder. It depends on. I learn new things. You know, I like old stuff, but I like new stuff. I like when I stumble on new things. The reason the reason I ask the question is this: because I I just believe and. and could be wrong, but I, I believe the whole premise of this whole demo thing is the idea that there's there's a great deal of a nostalgia in it. And I don't know that people make demos like they used to. So if it's something that we should be doing, pursuing, can we teach an older generation how they need to be um, doing demos again versus trying to make masters and moving them onto Spotify, well, I think, you know? I, I think that it, the culture has changed, though, in the sense of, like Carl was saying before, you would make the demos in order for the labels to look at you. And then once you were with the labels, you would make the masters. Um, that's they, how you get distributed. That's how they get distributed. Nowadays, it's changed so much where you can literally, with one click, upload your song to Spotify or any of, of the other distribution places. Of course. And it's, it's out there. So it almost has to be mastered and ready to go, regardless of where you want to take your career. And you also have some artists who don't even want or need labels to to have a career. So for them, the demos really aren't going to do anything except maybe sit there or, or potentially have their fans engage and see how they want to take the song. And that might not necessarily be something they want to do. And sometimes it works, but like perfect example, like, and I won't name any names, but on a lot of the the new songs I hear coming out of like Nashville with, with artists that we know. And a lot of times, a lot of these songs, a lot of them could have been reworked. You know, like I would, I would have redone those recordings and said, maybe they, this bridge is too long or, or this chorus, you know, it, it didn't, didn't get it right. You know, it, it's a demo. And then maybe if they would have taken more time and redid it again and maybe, you know, you know, listened to it and then revisited and like, you know, perfected it. Maybe when they finally did make the, the final recording, it would have been a better, Overall well, I'll tell you why that recording. I'll tell you why that occurs. It occurs because if there if there is a realm in which the demo is still important, it is in music publishing. So the reason, yeah, but that's that's a different thing. That's just a singer songwriter demo. That that's not really a demo. well, but yes, it is. Nowadays, it is. I mean, these guys are effectively making masters and calling them demos. The only reason they're demos is so that. The publishing company can can pay demo scale to get it made versus having to pay musicians master. But my my point being that if if you hear a demo, a full fleshed demo that has a bad arrangement or could have been reworked or maybe um, you know the song needed work, that's the work of a good publisher. And I don't think that happens a lot these days. So, well, and I think too the the way that everyone is going nowadays it's almost like get it recorded get it done get it out get it recorded get it done get it out there's no going back to seeing oh maybe we could do this or maybe we could do that there's so much and maybe it's internal pressure that the artists put on themselves but to get things 
out there that I don't think they take the time and they may not even have the skill to go back and see that maybe what they're putting out really is demo quality and they should have taken the time to actually figure out what other things they could do to it creatively to make it more of a master. So they so they could be old dogs that need new tricks. So let's see what the guys said about that. Or maybe maybe what I we should do. Maybe there should be new dogs. Then- maybe they should learn some old tricks. <laughs> I'd agree with that. I screwed that question up. See what they said. You've surely got to believe that this is the case. Otherwise, the temptation would be to just lie down and give up. One thing that I've been learning since we started putting the podcast together is that it's never too late to start listening more widely and opening your ears to the world of possibilities that are out there. For years, I thought that I had a really broad musical taste. But in truth, I think I'd become really narrowly focused in terms of the music that I was reaching for. In making songs from a padded envelope, we are finding folks working across a huge range of styles and they all have fantastic stories to tell. And in turn, these stories impact on how you hear the music that these people make. Anyone who thinks that all the best music in the world has already been made is laboring under some sense of delusion, needs to think again and go and check out some of the brilliant music that is being made right here and now. Basically what he's saying is, is, Like instead of saying maybe the question of teaching an old dog new tricks, it's you always have the ability to go out and expand your knowledge on certain things. Um, So it's whether or not it's like the different bands or different artists or or different genres, you personally are the one that have to make it happen in order to teach yourself how to do that. Because if that's not the case, you're always going to kind of stay in this little box. So how about, how about this? How about this? I I think the artists of today, are ruining the music industry. Oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> I, will on say, that I, note. I will say this. I, I, I do think that, and I never really thought about it before now, but I, I think that there are a ton of artists today because of technology, because you can make a really, really appealing re- recording uh, in isolation. I think that artists today are fairly isolated and i don't think they trade a lot of best practices or you know uh you know how you how you make a great demo the lost art of a demo versus um a recording or work tapes i don't think they trade a lot of information i'm working with a group right now a really cool edm group called producer dojo and that's what their business is about they're basically creating and serving an industry of um, producers that uh, these people are sharing amazing amounts of information and sharing, you know, beats and sharing. Um, I have, a, I have a, new, and, a, new th- you know. a new thing to say, you know what I think technology has done today for artists it's made people realize that being talented is not so big a deal. It's not that hard, <laughs> you know? So I have all these guys who think like John Lennon and David Bowie, they're great geniuses. They're not, they just, you know, they were just the guys who did it. Now anybody and their brother would just take a garage band, a little synthesizer, and make this great stuff. Look at Billie Eilish. That's what she is, basically. I think that the, 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 the new dogs actually could benefit from hearing some of these war stories associated with how all this stuff was made back in the day, as they said. Mm-hmm. Well, then, like, again, there's that Jack White mentality, like I said back on the in the webinar, where – like right now, if I was going to go, go into a studio right now and I had my, my druthers on exactly how I would do it, 
I wouldn't go digital. I would go into a, a room with two-inch tape to record drums and guitar, push some air, you know, actually get some real sonic bed tracks, then maybe come in and do like, you know, for some overdubbing, some some keyboard stuff and some loops and this and that. But but for my bed, I would still record the tape and then, you know, and then transfer it to, you know, to Pro Tools or something for mix. It's great for mixing. But as far as getting to the sound, you know, I, I think that's what's kind of is, is lost in a lot of today's recordings. And then if we need, the we'll go really old school. And if we need edits, we'll actually edit on the two inch. Yeah, yeah. I remember we did yeah. that. I remember everyone had to leave the room because they would sit there on a little thing and they'd slice, actually cut tape. I have my old <laughs> old songs with actually like scotch tape and razor blades. But we're know? not going to cut the half track. We're we're literally going to like edit inside the two inch in the multi track. That's what we did. We cut the yeah. two inch. Oh, you know, because Lord, like it was like yeah. You you be turning the the, 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 the you spend ten thousand dollars and if you screw up. Uh, a and then you screw up, you're done. done. Yeah. You got to tape it back in. There's no like, you know, it's just, it's destructive editing, man. Uh oh. I made a record in 1997, uh, and we we couldn't even find studio techs that knew how to operate the two inch machine. Everything was at that time, even in '97. It was like, you know, Pro Tools and we couldn't find anybody. We couldn't find a razor blade in the uh, in in the studio. So thanks to the guys over in Wales. The podcast again is called The Padded Room. The pa- <laughs> well, our, our version has been the Padded Room songs, um, songs from a padded envelope. Check them out. It was really great to have them on. Let's send let's send them a toaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I love and it. on that note, everyone, thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of the 9420 podcast. For all of the show links and more information, go to the website the numbers 94 and the letters TWENTY.com. We'll talk to you all later. Bye-bye. <laughs>